This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the 2021 all-new Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. But some of the most impressive elements are in the interior. My full name is Carrie Kennerly, and I'm a color and materials designer at Ford Motor Company. I've been here forever. (laughs) For Carrie, working on the Bronco Sport was a passion project. The chance to bring to life a legendary vehicle for a new generation. I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, so automotive has always been in my family. Okay, so you are like true blue. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Members of Carrie's team went to great lengths to research design elements, camping out with off-road enthusiasts, and interviewing the kind of people that demand the most from their SUVs. The result are features like the available Moly straps for securing gear, a concept that was inspired by high-end backpacks, hiking boots, and technical jackets. A guy that was a photographer, he loved the idea of the Moly straps on the seat back because he said he could put his camera inside and then he could connect his lenses with just the hooks. But simply attaching straps to standard fabric on the back of the seatbacks would never do. So the fabric that is behind the Moly straps is actually a police-grade fabric that we put in police vehicles. Climb inside the Bronco Sport and you'll find a range of rugged features, like a safari-style roof and liftgate flood lamps for easier base camp setup. Learn more at Ford.com slash Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. It goes without saying that for climbers, there's always the risk of falling. It's an essential fact about the sport. And for a lot of climbers, it's actually part of the appeal. What would climbing be, after all, without the risk of falling? That was definitely how Brendan Leonard saw it. Today, he's best known as the creator of the website Semirad, where he writes and draws about life as a non-professional athlete. But back in his 20s, when he discovered climbing, Brendan was in recovery from alcohol addiction and trying to figure out what kind of person he was going to be in the next chapter of his life. Being a climber was the identity he latched onto, even though climbing scared him. He saw it as an opportunity to face his fears and put them in their place. But then, in 2012, he was involved in an accident while climbing near Moab, Utah, that forced him to reckon with his identity once again. Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce brings us this first episode in our 10-part series, The Wild Files, which has people sharing stories about the moments they'll never forget and the journeys that change their lives. There are rocks that can be climbed, and then there are rocks that demand to be climbed. Castleton Tower is the latter kind. It's a 400-foot spire of sandstone that rises up out of the desert just outside of Moab. Brendan started dreaming about climbing it the first time he ever saw it, before he was even a climber. But it wasn't until October 2012 that he actually attempted it. And when he finally found himself standing at the base of the monolith, 
he was more nervous than he wanted to let on. This route itself is, I just think it's imposing. You know, sandstone is never something you really trust all that much with climbing gear and taking taking falls on it. Uh, or at least I don't. A lot of people probably do. Um, but yeah, Just because it's, it's so soft? Yeah, it's not granite, you know. I mean, it's literally rock that's made of compressed sand, so it's not like... It's not bulletproof in any means. You can sometimes take a piece of sandstone and crush it under your heel, you know. Not exactly a reassuring thought to have when you're about to start a trad climb, meaning that as you climb, you place all your own protection to catch you in the event of a fall. Brendan and his climbing partner, Chris, had brought a huge rack of different sized cams, which are a kind of device that expands into an anchor when it's wedged inside a crack. They're super reliable protection, if you have the right sizes for the route. I had, you know, probably read the description of the route like 16 times and wondered which pitches I was going to get. Um, there's a, there's definitely a really wide pitch um, that, that I was terrified of because I didn't know if we had big enough cams. And of course, I would love to just take up like 10 giant cams and protect these big, big sections and of course you don't do that because you don't want to carry you don't want to carry the weight and the bulk of them. So, yeah, I was pretty, you know, I get to the the base of those climbs and think this will be great. This will be a really fun adventure. And inside most of me just wants my partner to go, "You know what? I'm going to lead the whole thing today. You just sit back and relax." <laughs> and that never happens. You get to the base and it's like, "You want this one?" And I'm like, "Sure, I guess so." Which is exactly what happened. So Brendan led the first pitch of the climb. It was pretty easy, 140 feet. He stopped when he got to a big ledge, where he could set up a comfortable anchor to belay Chris from above. And there was a couple there, uh, a guy and a girl, and I think the guy was uh, had did some climbing guiding, and he was he was really really confident guy. I remember him saying something about. He saw one of the bigger cams on my rack and said something like, I don't need that. You know, it's like, oh, I do, buddy. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Psychologically, I do, even if I don't put it anywhere. Um, and he, he started up the pitch, and this isn't even the hardest pitch on the climb, but I do remember sit, standing there kind of chatting uh, with his partner about whatever weather and whatnot. And I remember hearing him breathing, and I was I was thinking like, okay, this guy's a guide, but he is like definitely engaged on this section. And he shouted down and said, Hey, there's a loose flake in up here. Um, however, however many feet up, maybe he was 60 or 70 feet up. And he's like, just, just be aware that it's up here. He was, you know, telling his partner as well as me to let me know. And they passed it without incident. She climbed past it without incident. My partner came up, Chris, and he took all the gear from me and he led up, got to the loose flake and said, okay, man, I'm right at it, but I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not touching it. You know, I'm, I think I'll be able to climb around it without touching it. And, and then, uh, maybe a few seconds later, he just yelled rock and this, I had set up the belay so I could sort of jump in one or two directions if I saw something coming down. And of course this huge, this big chunk, like the size of two laptops or something like that. It was pretty big. I saw it come flying down. And I think I kind of ducked into the corner um, to try to get out of the way and like protect myself. And I heard it hit above me and it broke into a bunch of pieces. And when I pulled my head back away to look uh, where it had landed, there were three or four chunks of it that had landed directly on a rope. And 
I sort of yelled up to Chris and said, hey, if you're in a good spot, I need a second to see if our rope is actually intact. And it was cut in a bunch of places. So I started pulling rope out going, okay, well, how much of this is left? I didn't want to lower him down and have a piece of rope that is cut just pop in half and let him fly 150 feet under the ground. Um, so I checked it out and I said, I think, I mean, I have enough to lower you for sure. And we kind of just slowly lowered him down. And, um, I was a little bit going, you know, this just doesn't feel like my day already. I'm uh-huh. already, I'm already <laughs> sort of dreading this. And then, and then this rock fall and whatnot. And Chris is going through our rope and he goes, man, I think we already, got, I think we got 40 meters here. We could probably finish the climb and then just rappel down with somebody else. And I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm good, man. You know, I think I, I think I'd go home. They were still going back and forth over what to do when two younger guys came up beneath them and set up a belay on a ledge just below. Brendan felt bad for keeping them waiting and yelled down that they should pass if they wanted to. So one of the guys started up. And he climbed up, I think about 20 or 25 feet above us, and he put a big cam in a big crack and... He yelled down to his partner and said, hey, I'm going to lean, I'm going to sit back on this for a second and rest. And he went to sit and I just heard this weird noise, you know, that's so quiet in the desert when you're up on a ledge. If it's not super windy, which it wasn't, you know, you're, it's a really peaceful place to be. It's just you and some birds flying by, you know. And so when you do hear a weird noise, it's, it's getting your attention immediately. So, yeah, I, I looked up and it was just a human body flying through the air. He fell and landed, I would say, 80% of his impact was just right on his face, like on the ledge right next to us. It was The ledge is probably 10 or 15 feet wide. Um, it's big enough for you could almost park a car on it, but he hit. It was like a body falling off of a house onto the sidewalk, you know, the height. And he had a helmet on, uh, but of course, you know, the helmet doesn't go over your face. Um, so he impacted the ground headfirst, immediately had a seizure, the seizure lasted probably 30 seconds where he was just like groaning and like sucking in air and like I don't yeah it was, it was an intense moment and it was just like like I don't know what happens after that I don't know how people get stabilized you know things like that I'm a guy who works you know at a desk all the time I don't see a lot of graphic medical situations so it was I I wondered if I was if we were going to be the last people he ever talked to you know I didn't didn't know The guy was drifting in and out of consciousness. Brendan shouted down to his climbing partner and learned the guy's name was Peter. So he just started talking to him. Brendan had no medical training at the time, and Chris only had an expired wilderness first responder. They didn't know what to do. It's not something you ever think is going to happen. You don't, you know, I would read read people's trip reports and like... um, you know, descriptions of the pitches and what kind of gear to take and how many ropes do you need or what length of rope works and, and all these other things that you obsess about, you know, and, and you don't think, what am I going to do if somebody falls, like just has a catastrophic accident right next to me? The climbers above us yelled down to us and said, you know, is everything okay? And, and I think we yelled up like, no, this guy just fell and decked, you know, and um, he's not okay. And the guy yelled down and said, oh, I'm, I'm a wilderness EMT. We're going to come down and help you out um, and figure it out. And then you were all, four of you, and 
and the person who had fallen, you were all just on the ledge together. Yeah. So they did most of the work, and we just were kind of like, how do we help? I called 911. I somehow had service right there. And then actual search and rescue showed up, and we could see people mobilizing. And uh, the sun the sun was dropping, and they eventually we helped pull up a litter and um, this, the associated things to, to stabilize him. Then a helicopter came and picked up the litter and flew Peter away to the hospital. Brendan and Chris rappelled back down to the base of the climb and walked to their cars by headlamp. It was the first time Brendan had ever seen someone in really bad shape, and he was shaken. You have this idea of these sort of consequences that can happen if you, if you fall, but mostly what happens when you fall is you fall into air, you know, and you're fine. You don't think, oh, you know, the gear's going to rip and somebody's going to hit the ground and all the protective equipment you have isn't going to help you at all. But when you see what happens to a human body when it falls 20, 25 feet and lands like in an awkward fashion that the person can't control and what actually physically happens, you think to yourself, yeah, rock climbing maybe is not worth that happening to me. And I just I just remember saying something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, I could I could maybe not climb ever again and be okay, you know, and and I remember Chris telling me, like, don't don't not climb because of that. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to stick with it. Brendan had built his new identity around climbing. He was a climber. Not only that, but after years of trying, he had just started to write for a few big climbing magazines. So, of course, he wasn't going to give up on climbing, even if it made him miserable. I was in the middle of feeling like on this sort of downward slope of falling out of love with it. And also the the writing part was taken off. And I'm like, well, I can't just stop. But I was sort of like, why am I an adult? And the, the one thing I like to do, it just fills me with complete dread half the time. Like, this is not, I don't think this is fun, you know. At the top of the episode, we heard from Ford Motor Company designer Carrie Kennerly about the interior of the 2021 all-new Bronco Sport. As Carrie explains it, the design team made sure that every inch of the vehicle is crafted to inspire adventure. I am a mom and I have kids. We will go camping and we'll go bike riding and I've gone fishing and I want my vehicle to withstand to that. Meaning tough and rugged. Tough and rugged. This is the first vehicle that I've worked on that has had such aggressive rubber mats that are on the floor of the cargo area, but then they're also there on the on the seat back. I mean, it's it's great putting lumber or whatever. You don't have to worry about it. It's ready for it. The cargo area comfortably fits two 27.5-inch wheel mountain bikes. Then there's the available storage under the second row seats, which is ready to haul wet or muddy gear, or maybe a few surprises. You, yeah, you could put wet boots in there. I mean, if, if you have kids and things they find and want to bring home, things they collect, and you're like, okay, I guess we can take that with us, you don't really have to worry about it in a Bronco Sport. You can find a place to, to keep it. It's not going <laughs> to trash up and stink up the rest of your vehicle. <laughs> Learn more about how you can outfit the new Bronco Sport to fit your adventurous lifestyle at Ford.com slash Bronco.
After the accident, Brendan stuck to his promise to keep climbing. And two years later, in 2014, that promise led him to Zion National Park in Utah. Zion is famous for its big wall climbing. If you've spent any time on the shuttle buses there going up and down the canyon, you'll you'll eventually land on a driver, a shuttle bus driver who loves to, you know, point out climbers on the walls above you. And sometimes they're like a couple hundred feet up and sometimes they're just a speck up there. And, you know, they tell they're like part of the wildlife. You know, it's like it's like in Yellowstone. People are like, oh, there's a bison in Zion. It's like you don't see as much wildlife on the bus, uh, but you do see climbers and they're they're part of the landscape. For years, Brendan had dreamed about being one of those climbers. Back in 2005, he had visited the park with his then-girlfriend. They were on a shuttle bus when a group of climbers got on board. We'd just gone for like a walk on the river walk, and then we're coming back down, and um, these guys got on the bus, or three of them, and they were wearing like, they were just kind of like coated in like rope dust and maybe chalk. And the bus driver said, what route were you guys climbing? And one of the guys said, space shot. And another guy said, we, we just fixed the first couple pitches and we're going to go to their, you know, we're going to fire the rest of it tomorrow. And I was just like, space shot. That sounds so cool. Look at how cool these guys are. And looking at all their gear and stuff. And my girlfriend at the time looks over at me and goes, do you want to ask those guys for their autograph? And I was like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, Brendan did not ask for their autograph. But the sense of awe stuck with him. So in 2014, when he was trying to sort out his increasingly negative feelings about climbing, he wondered if maybe climbing a big wall in Zion would make him love the sport again. He decided he wanted to do the climb the classic way, aid climbing, which is a style of climbing that involves climbing the gear instead of using your hands and feet to propel you up the wall. You're not doing these this balletic climbing with your shirt off that we we think of as rock climbing nowadays. It's like look at a crack above your head, put a piece of metal in it, clip clip yourself to the metal, stand up, you know, bring the rope up with you, put another piece of metal in the crack, and slowly make your way up these walls with all this hardware. I, I remember at one point I told somebody, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to Zion and learn how to aid climb. And they said something like, what you're going to aid climb? Why don't you just do road construction instead? You know, it was like, it's about that fun. And so why did you want to do this again? Uh, curiosity. Aid climbing felt like this last thing I wanted to tick off, you know, and I wasn't sure if it was going to lead me to want to do a ton more of that. When I was either going to fall head over heels in love with it, or it was going to be a good punctuation mark in my climbing career. Brendan had a friend named Ethan who had some experience with aid climbing. So he invited him to make the trip. On the first day, they did a bit of a dry run, practicing on a shorter route. Then, the second day, they climbed halfway up a longer route and set up a portal edge, one of those hanging tents. Things were going pretty well. Brendan wasn't exactly having a blast, but he was enjoying the feeling of being up high, one of the birds. Then came the third day of climbing. The deal was that Ethan would lead the hard pitches and I would lead the easy pitches. And the easy pitches in this case were the top two. And the first three pitches were difficult and steep and um, 
I think they were pretty, I think they were pretty challenging for Ethan. Um, and I think, I think there still is a loose block in this route that people are just kind of like, I don't know how this thing is still stuck to the wall. Um, but I spent, I don't know how many hours just staring up at Ethan, staring at the wall with this like uncomfortable belay, daunting wall sticking up above me. And I keep looking at my watch going, okay, the first pitch took X amount of hours. The sun goes down at 8.07 PM or whatever. Okay, I'm only going to have 40 minutes to do the first pitch, and then it's going to be dark. And I've just looked up at this wall going, I am totally dreading. This This is, this is just dread. I just feel dread for what I'm doing today. Adding to that sense of dread was the knowledge that on the last pitch of the climb, he would have to use something called a hook, which he had never done before. It's like a three-pronged hook, and you sort of feel around for a tiny little ledge to put this hook on. And you hook the, this metal hook above your head, and then you clip basically a nylon ladder to it, and then you gingerly put your weight on this thing, and hopefully it doesn't shift and pop. And you usually do it with your head facing down, so that if the hook pops off, it hits the top of your helmet instead of hitting you in you know, the eyeball or the nose. So I knew that there were a couple hook moves at the top, at least one, and I was like, had never placed a hook before was like, God, I hope I do this right. So I got I got near the top of the second pitch after this day of dreading it and, you know, honestly, probably several years of dreading things. And it's a very specific kind of loneliness in Zion Canyon at the top of a whatever it was, 800-foot route uh, in the dark because the shuttle buses stop coming up and down the canyon. There's no cars. It's just you and your fear and all the bad decisions in your life that have led you up to this point. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I hate myself. And trying to pull off these these hook moves, like gingerly feeling for, you know, like, is that lip of rock big enough? And you can't really see because it's dark. You have a little bubble of a headlamp and pulling a hook move and then doing another one. I think there's maybe three in a row at the top. And just remembering, thinking like, oh, I'm the guy I'm the guy that the bus driver would have pointed out, you know, if there was anybody on the bus right now. Like, I'm doing it. I'm having the time of my life. But it's also the worst thing I've ever done. And I think I made my decision. I was like, I'm just going to take a break from climbing after this, after we're done with this this big wall. You know, like, this is terrifying. And, uh, you know, made it through and, you know, clipped myself to a tree pulled Ethan up and you know it was done and like a tremendous amount of relief for me like wow that's over I don't I don't ever have to do that again do you still consider yourself a climber I wouldn't say I'm a climber I can go I can go have a blast at the gym and I definitely could do some sport climbing but it doesn't doesn't motivate me as much anymore I guess yeah do you feel like you realized I'm not a climber anymore sort of immediately after that Zion climb or did it take a while? I think I sort of just transitioned out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Just sort of started looking for different ways to explore, you know. It was sort of like, oh, let's take a break, you know, and, and see what happens. And it's like it's like when you're in a, a bad relationship and you're like, we should take some time off. And then you take some time off and neither of you call each other. And you're just like, oh, I guess that's just not going to happen anymore. We're done. <laughs> you never called climbing back. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if we saw each other on the street, it'd be like, hey, how have you been? Like, yeah. Oh, no, I'm good. And like, yeah. You know, I, was, <laughs> I was thinking about us and, you know, that was, that was a good time. I'm glad we're not doing it anymore. And they'd be like, yeah, me neither. Giving up on climbing wasn't actually that hard in the end. But it did leave a void. And as Brendan thought about how he was going to fill that void, he kept coming back to something the climber Kelly Cordes had said to him during the interview years earlier. It was for a podcast episode of the Dirtbag Diaries called What is Hardcore? And it was just this sort of half-serious exploration of the idea of being hardcore. And uh, I had talked to Kelly about some of the stuff he had done in the mountains, which is sort of insane levels of... It's, it's definitely um, survival, you know, like, wow, I can't believe you didn't die doing that um, because of things that happened. And I said, well, you know, you're pretty hardcore. And he said, essentially, he said, well, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're in the mountains and your only option is to keep moving or die, it's pretty easy to get motivated. And he said, I think of my friends who are ultra runners, I think they're really hardcore because if you're running a hundred mile race by mile 50, I guarantee you nobody is having a good time and you keep running past these aid stations, you know, and it's the middle of the night and they have a fire going and you're tired and your legs hurt. What is stopping you from just saying, you know what? I'm done. This is not fun. I'm going to sit down, get a ride out of here. Give me a beer and a bag of chips. Thanks. You know? And he said to keep going in the face of like when you have the option to quit, fairly constantly is pretty impressive. Like, that's really hardcore. And I think that kind of stuck with me for many years. As a climber, Brendan had leaned into the idea that fear is a necessary component of adventure. But what if it wasn't? What if an adventure was just pushing yourself to do something that you weren't sure you could do? I'd run a marathon in 2006 as like a one-off thing and absolutely hated it and was like, cool, I'm never never have to do that again. I know what that's like. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Jason, had started, got in his head that he was going to do a 50K and he had started doing these long training runs and I hadn't been going with him. I'd go on the shorter ones that were like six or seven miles and battle through him. And he, we went out for pizza one night and he I said, like, how did how did your run go today? And he had, like, sort of a, an epic at, a, like, a county park near town where he ran out of water several miles from the trailhead in, like, 90-degree heat. And he was describing it like it was the best time of his life, how much fun it was, just almost it's just how, how miserable it was, yet fun. And I thought, <laughs> boy, this sounds like it could be right up my alley. Um, so the next morning I... I just got up and was like, I'll just try to run 10 miles like around the neighborhood, see if I, see how it goes. If I don't get like shin splints or something like that, maybe I'll sign up for that ultra marathon with Jason. Brendan ran the 10 miles and he was fine. So he signed up for the ultra. And after that ultra, he signed up for another one and then another one. Eventually, in 2017, he and Jason signed up for a 100 mile race. Brendan was nervous going in, but it was a different kind of nervous from how he'd felt standing at the base of Castleton Tower and on that wall in the dark at Zion. You know you're not going to die. You're pretty sure you're not going to die. You definitely know you're going to feel like you want to die, though, for like 
anywhere from one to 12 hours or more. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of fear, I guess. But I just didn't want to fail that first one, you know, because then you don't know, like, and like, you don't know if you can finish it. And also like, then you have to try it again. And it's like, oh my God, I have to repeat this entire process just to prove to myself that I can do this. So So sort of like what Kelly had said, like the the difference between fear of actually dying, like if you make a mistake and the fear of failing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people, different people have different goals and like, I've never been like, I want to run this fast. You know, I want to compete or something like that. It's just like, to me, that distance is so daunting and be like, okay, can I be one of these, you know, however many thousands of people who actually can pull this off? Can I do that? You know, you don't know. So it's a, it's a different, it's an interesting fear. There's not a momentary lapse in judgment usually in these races or runs I do that could lead to um, a catastrophic accident, you know, where you, you know, miscommunicate with your climbing partner or clip a rope wrong or, you know, put, don't put a knot in your rope while you're rappelling or whatever, which is the things that happen a lot in climbing. And, um, you know, I, the, so the sense of relief is more just a physical thing. Like I have never had like the, the joy of just like rubbing my feet together after a hundred mile race. Like I don't even know how to recreate that feeling. It's unbelievable how, how good it feels. And you can't even describe it to someone. And if I do another hundred, I'll do it again. I'll be like marveling, like, wow, I can't believe this. Like, there's only one way to get this feeling. I I think it's probably a lot like the first time people shoot heroin, you know, where they're like chasing the dragon. Like, oh my God, it's like nothing you've ever experienced, you know? I honestly don't know. But I love the joy in Brendan's voice when he's talking about it. Because at the end of the day, that's how you should sound when you're talking about an adventure. Not full of dread and fear, but full of a sense of accomplishment and excitement for the next time. That was Stephanie Joyce talking with Brendan Leonard. Brendan has a new book out. It's called I Hate Running and You Can Too. It's about running, but really, it's about all the ways we convince ourselves we can't do something and how to overcome that. Links to buy the book are on Brendan's website, semirad.com. That's S-E-M-I hyphen R-A-D dot com. Stephanie Joyce produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music for the Wildfile series is by Louis Weeks. All the episodes in the Wildfowl series are brought to you by the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at Ford.com Bronco. We'll be back in two weeks, and the next edition of the Wildfiles will be coming to you on April 13th, when we begin publishing two episodes a week for a while.